0: Please join me in standing at the reading of God's Word. I'm going to begin reading in the Gospel of John, verse 23 out of the second chapter through uh, the third chapter. Now when He, and that is Christ, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing. But Jesus on His part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him, Should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. The people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We're in a series where we're walking through the Gospel of John. And we're taking a spiritual journey with John where we're looking at those claims that John is making about Christ and his work that some may consider to be myth. But in the spiritual journey, we're encouraged to consider these things again and to see them not as myth, but as truth. And then, once we've come to grasp and said... This is truth by expressing our belief in it that we find that this truth that we now have put our faith in and we believe with our head, we hook our heart into it and find life. The claim this morning that John makes at the end of chapter 2 and in chapter 3 is this claim that any man, woman, and child who would have life, who would have life now and forever in God's kingdom must be born again. There must be a restart. We cannot do it on our own. And we're going to observe this morning in the time that remains, we're going to see in a very intense conversation that Jesus has with one who is in the Sanhedrin as a ruler. He comes, he's theologically astute. He's someone that, he doesn't approach Christ in hostility, but he comes asking, who is Jesus? And Jesus shifts the conversation to confront him with what he cannot do. And then he guides the conversation to comfort him with what Jesus alone can do. But I believe that it's the most intense conversation that Nicodemus would ever have in his life, and it's the most intense conversation that we, if you're a Christian or if you're not a Christian today, the most intense conversation that you can ever have with Jesus is on this subject of our rebirth. Or he will challenge us and confront us not because it's bad news but because it is good news and he would not leave us to ourselves and our own devices. He reaches in in this conversation to Nicodemus' heart in an effort to rescue him and therefore after confronting him with that that he cannot do he immediately follows him with an invitation in the conversation with that that he can do and he offers to do for him alone. I was thinking this past week, what was the most intense conversation that I've ever had? What was the most intense conversation? Well, I'm a pastor and someone uh, has said that whenever a pastor answers the phone, it's going to be an intense conversation. Uh, Now, you're, you're the most loving conversation... Uh, congregation, I think I've ever been privileged to serve, so I do get phone calls. I got phone calls this last week. Someone called and said, hey, don't want anything, don't need anything. I just wanted to call like Stevie Wonder and say I love you. I'm like, cool, may your tribe increase. Someone called and they said, look, I'm not calling to ask you to pray about something. I'm calling to tell you that I'm praying for you. Cool, may your tribe increase. But sadly, the majority of phone calls that a pastor or many elders will get are confrontive. There's conflict in the conversation. So I've got a lot of intense conversations to draw from. But the one that came first to mind was a conversation that we had back in Utah when we had first located there to start a church. I can use this illustration with Ben because I've, it's on record before. I've, I've told this story before uh, with Ben, and he's uh, given me permission to use it. But we were new in the community. We were renting a home in the neighborhood when Ben came home with a new play friend and said that they had broken a window in a house that they thought was abandoned. And it was a rental property. And we were given the name of the individual who owned the house, and so we said we've got to go and make this right. And so we went to this individual's house, who also lived in the neighborhood, a couple of doors down from us. And when we went there, the house was huge, but the door looked like uh, it looked like Frankenstein's castle. You know where the you know the door handle is like right here, and and it's just this huge door, and we're thinking wow, that, that's a big door. So we ring the doorbell, and we hear... Now, Ben is about this... I mean, he is he's a little guy. And so he's looking over me, and I mean, he's grabbing my hand because I told him, I said, what we're going to do is we're going to go, and we're going to apologize, and we're going to repent. We're going to repent. And that's where you say you're sorry because when you broke the window out, it was a little bit more than an accident. And you regret that about you. And you're asking for this person's pardon. And yet, you're able to do this because you recognize as a Christian that God is the great forgiver and you've gone to Him and He's forgiven you and now you're seeking before men to repent. And so we kind of rehearsed this in a kid's language, but as he hears these footsteps, he's just, you know, it's like white knuckles. It's like, who's going to open that door? And the tallest man that I have ever seen in my life. Open the door, Mark Eaton, a former center for the Utah's Jazz professional uh, basketball team, opened the door, and I promise you, he's he's almost eight foot tall. I mean, this guy is just huge, and so I'm just at six foot, and bends down about you know waist high here, and so he opens the door, and I mean, it is a regular door for him. And he just opens the door, and he looks down, and he says, yes. And he's got this huge red beard, so he looks like this, sh- this huge giant of a man. And I said, uh, <clears throat> my name is uh, Phil Stogner, and this is my son, Ben. And uh got my voice back, and he said, well, what can, I, what can I do for you? And I said, well, we're new to the neighborhood. Yeah, I thought I saw somebody move in down there. And, and again, I'm talking like this, you know, and he's systematically he's bending over a little bit. And then I said, my son has something he wants to tell you. And that was, Ben told him what he did, and as he proceeded to tell him what he did, he said something to the fact of, I'm a Christian. And at that time, Mark Eaton got down on his knees, and even on his knees, he's still not eye-to-eye level with you, but he held Ben's hand and he says, I'm a Christian too. And he says, I know that that was the hardest thing that you've ever had to do. I know that. I can be a scary guy. And he said, but we're going to be really good friends. And he was. He began to attend our church. He joined the church as a member. He would become one of our first elders. He would become Ben's best friend when Ben was facing surgery in the hospital. Mark was there. It began because of an intense conversation where sin is confronted but then pardon, pardon is granted and the intimacy in the relationship was as intense and as sweet as that initial confrontation. And I thought why was it intense? It was intense because of his size, the intensity of his size. He, he grew. As he opened the door, he became larger and larger and larger, almost as if he was not a mere man, which he certainly was. What made this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus intense was not because Jesus Christ was rude or cutting or cruel It wasn't because he was dogmatic or overly theological and was going to match theological precision with theological precision with uh, this teacher. No. What made it intense was that Jesus Christ in their conversation that he has with Nicodemus grows. When he's initially greeted by Nicodemus in verse 2 Nicodemus says, Rabbi, Now, Jesus was not, I'll say, ordained or credentialed as a rabbi. But he was, Nicodemus showed a great deal of respect and said, you're like the rabbis. You are a great teacher. And without asking a question, Jesus, who knows what is in Nicodemus' heart, immediately turns on that to answer a question that was on Nicodemus' mind. He turns it, And he answers it as if to say, I'm bigger than an instructor. I'm bigger than a theological teacher. I'm a savior. I have knowledge of the keys of life. If there's a question that you're asking is, do I have the kind of faith that will give me life? Let me tell you how you get that kind of life. Let me tell you how you get the relationship with God that will assure you of eternal life. In other words, Christ grows and becomes intent and he has a heart-to-heart conversation with Nicodemus. Look at the scriptures here. In verse 3, he says, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. A little side road. Don't be thrown off by that language. Born again is so belittled and is so laughed at in our culture. It began probably uh, 20, maybe 25 years ago where born again was actually put into the classification of looney tunes. You know, only the street preachers talk about you must be born again. Or only only those really wacky, crazy, Christian, narrow, conservative, moralistic, cruel, hateful groups talk about be born again. In the Protestant faith, every Protestant church, in the Catholic faith, and in the Anglican or Episcopal faith, if you look in their documents there will be a statement regarding the necessity to be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God. There must be a change in the person where they are not with Christ and then they come into Christ. But they don't come on their own energies, but they come by a work of the power of the Holy Spirit upon their heart. If it's a Christian organization, you'll find, be it in the book of common prayer, be it in their hymn book, be it in their creeds, be it in their covenants, there will be a statement to say that upon the forgiveness of our sins, we are made new. We have a new name in the heavens. We have a new identity because we have a new heart. We have new eyes now to see God and to see the person of Christ. So take care if you join those that belittle or mark off as looney tunes uh, the subject of born again, because it's a foundational, foundational truth. It is not a myth. It's a foundational truth, and it is one that is necessary. As Shakespeare would say, Methink they do doth protest too much, for those that would protest against being born again many times have believed the lie that I believe that Jesus is trying to rescue the uh, Nicodemus from. And the lie is this. You can do it. You can do it either on your own, by living a good life, and by being a good person, or you can do it almost on your own with a little assistance of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ confronts that lie by saying, What we need is not a little medicine to have life and to be revived. What we need is a new life because we're dead. We're not sick, but apart from Christ, we're dead. And Christ comes and he says, That may sound like really bad news, but if you see that first, if you realize you cannot, you cannot come into the kingdom, you cannot see the king unless you're born again. You cannot. If we don't see that, then we're walking in blindness. We're walking in blindness in the noonday. In other words, we're not seeing the very thing that we're in the midst of that we should see here in the scriptures i like it that uh jesus christ is systematically walking uh nicodemus through this and it it takes a little getting used to for nicodemus three times in essence three times um and plus with a uh an example out of numbers about moses lifting up the bronze serpent he's patiently going after nicodemus's heart and he knows What's in Nicodemus' heart? Do you believe that your heart can deceive you? The Scripture says so. Nicodemus' heart was deceiving him. Now, Nicodemus, in my perspective, is, is balanced. He's not, he's not rude. He's not mean. He's not trying to set Jesus up. He's probably theologically sharp or astute. He makes his approach, he's having a conversation, he shows respect, rabbi. He's got it together, as it were. But Jesus is not going to let him stay, as it were, with that notion that I'm okay with God because I've got it together enough. That would be a lack of love. Instead, he corners him. He corners him. The... um, it says over in, oops. It says over in verse uh, six that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And then he's going to go on and he's going to say that we're going to have to be born. Back in verse uh, five, he says, "Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God." What is happening here is he's saying there has to be the action of a spirit upon a person that is outside of you. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 31, what is effective calling? Effective calling is the work of God's Spirit who convinces us that we are sinful and miserable. That doesn't sound like very good news, does it? Who enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ and who renews our will, even as He is showing us our sin because our heart deceives us. We would not look at it. But He brings it, as it were, to the surface. Being born of the Spirit and of water, it sounds like a storm. He brings a, a storm into our life, the, the, the wind and the rain. And it creates this, this movement. It brings stuff to the surface that has been there dormant. I begin to see it. I've got my eyes begin to open. And my will and my resolve to do something about it is renewed. This is how He, that is the Spirit of Christ, persuades and makes us able to, to receive Jesus Christ who is freely offered to us in the Gospel. In other words, I cannot do it on my own. And secondly, one way to recognize that the Holy Spirit is at work doing it in me is I do feel guilty. I do feel like a sinful wretch. I do feel it. Because if not, dead men have no feelings. One way that you know that you are being born again, you are being born again, is that you look and you begin to see sin for what it is. And you also begin to connect the knots for the misery that you're experiencing with that. But then you also have a renewed will to not run away, but to go to Jesus. And thereby we're born again. L. A Wessel. Ellie Wessel, excuse me, Ellie Wessel Wessel said in his book, Sons of Fire, or Souls of Fire, he said that in a lot of Jewish literature, there's this theme of darkness and a storm that will come into people's lives. And it's in that storm and it's in that darkness, even as Nicodemus met Jesus at night. And there's a storm in this conversation where he's being confronted. He said in Jewish literature, there's frequently this common theme of a person or a family where they're in a dark storm and God comes and he confronts them in power. Lightning flashes. And at that point, the fool, the fool will focus on the lightning And the wise man at that point will focus on the path that is illuminated by the storm. Let me repeat that and apply it. In the storm in our life where God confronts us with our sin, are you focused more on the storm and the misery and the guilt and the pain are the consequences. Are are you saying, wow, a light is turned on and it's illuminating the way that I am to go. And that way is to Jesus. And that's where in the conversation he begins to comfort him now just as he's cornered him and discomforted him by saying, you cannot, you cannot do this on your own he then offers him himself. If you look down, he begins to, he tells us in verse 13, that no one is ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man, one of John uh, the gospel writer's favorite terms for Jesus Christ. And so the he that Jesus Christ presents to Nicodemus is none other than himself. And I'm going to have to conclude in just a few minutes, but can I? If you're a Christian, you might be sitting there saying, "Yeah, we got to wrap this up." I mean, I was born again years ago. I mean, years ago. I mean, it's good for people that at Two Rivers we encourage people that are not Christians or contemporary or are presently followers of Jesus Christ to come and to bring your questions, to bring your mind, to bring your heart. And to look afresh and anew at this one and the claims that are made here. We encourage that. And you're welcome here. You're in the right place. But this message is not simply for you who would be born again. This message is for us who are born again that we might have a daily and fresh comprehension of our being born again and that not of our own goodness or our own selves. You know why? Why? it will reflect in how we repent. Did I repent a long time ago for, for something and then kind of get in the membership of Christianity and now I no longer repent except maybe on Sunday morning at Two Rivers? Or does my life become one of daily and continual repenting? And do I find that I'm quicker and quicker as I see more and more I'm running quicker and quicker to Jesus that He might remove it of its guilty stain or its power? Am I finding that I'm even repenting of my repenting? I'm repenting of of just cold prayers. I find myself awakened again when there's the storm that kicks up, the wind and the water in my life when it kicks up and it brings things to surface and I become aware of it that I know now what to do. And there's a, there's, a, there's a freedom as well as an urgency to bring it to Him. I pray it too, Rivers I would have us be a repenting church. Again, not because it's a morbid practice, but because we would be free of these things and because the Holy Spirit is ever effectively calling us, calling us, calling us, confronting us, and matchmaking us again with a forgiveness that is ours in Jesus Christ. This was, when my kids were growing up, this was my favorite devotional book. And it was really the only one that ever worked for us. Um, I encourage you as a family, if you have kids, find something that works. Um, and ask other parents or, or uh, go online, experiment with a number of things. But this was what worked for us. The Bible in Pictures for Little Eyes by Kenneth Taylor. And it has, this one is falling apart, like that's Daniel in the lion's den, so it has a colored uh, image, and then it has a a little story, and then it's got a couple of questions. And what you can't see because of the size, and it was my favorite image, and my kids loved it. They'd always want to go back, and I was like, no, we've got to work through the whole book, don't go back there. was where Moses was instructed by God to lift up the bronze serpent on the stake, on a cross, on a cross And it talks about the story, and I'll read you just a little bit. Moses took a hammer and some brass and made a snake. It isn't a real snake. It isn't alive. God tells Moses that anyone who looks at the snake on the pole would get well again. The people in the picture are looking at the brass snake on the pole. Now they will be all right, but if anyone won't look, he will die. But all it took was a look. You didn't have to take Brasso and polish the bronze serpent. You didn't have to go and take a bath and then come and stand and look. You didn't have to wear Sunday best. You didn't have to go out and do things or work on yourself and get yourself moderately straight and balanced and then come. You didn't have to bring money. You didn't have to bring education. All you had to do was look. My kids liked that because they said, Daddy, look at the mother. The mother is holding a small infant child and the child perhaps was bitten by the snake as well. And she's holding it up so that the child can see. Jesus, in this intense conversation, says, look, take a look, and I'm going to open your eyes as you're born again to see the depths of your sin. But in that moment, with that one look, turn and see me as the Savior. See me as the King. It's the only way to see me as the king. And as you see me, then know my kingdom and my love and enter in. We'll see Nicodemus again. Nicodemus will show up in John chapter 19, and he'll show up at the cross. Christ has expired. Christ is that serpent lifted up. And there, they will remove the body, having asked Pilate for the body. And Nicodemus, this one, who was trained to not touch dead bodies, Nicodemus, this one who had come fearfully in the night, demonstrates tender, loving care for the body of Jesus. He demonstrates... Fearlessness to ask for that body, he would fight for that body. He would die for Christ, and then generosity at his own expense. He'll he'll provide the the the, the myrrh, and then he himself will wash the body, and touch the body, and prepare the body of Christ to lay it away. You see, Nicodemus. Is born again. And he sees the king. And he loves him. I pray this morning as we come to this table that you'll see the body of Christ. And then seeing this body, you'll see the price that he paid for your sin that you see. And then as you take this body represented by this bread and hand, you will take Jesus again as your King. And as you take this cup, you will take again and ask for the Holy Spirit. Spirit gives life to Spirit. That this table will nourish you spiritually. That the Holy Spirit will use these elements to produce Spirit in you, to produce life such that as you look at him there is all comfort for you now see with newborn eyes as you're born again that you would find that this feeds your spirit to more and more and more see Christ let's pray father I do ask that you would take these humble elements and that you'd set them aside for a holy, holy use, a mysterious use. Father, there are things in my life that I cannot stop doing. There are things in my life that haunt me with guilt. There are things in my life, Father, that I am not even aware of repenting of father by the power of the holy spirit through these elements as we take them in may you remind us of our sin only to remind us that there is pardon and forgiveness in christ without reluctance and as i take it in father strengthen us strengthen us make us like nicodemus strong and tender generous and sacrificial as we have seen the King dying for us. I ask this in Christ's name.